We've been doing some stuff about community. Uh, in fact, last week was uh, kind of the, uh, the start of our community groups at the project here, uh, which we think are really important um, just as a vehicle for uh, us to engage in biblical community with each other. Um, it seems to us, especially if you read all of chapter 4 of Ephesians, which I'm not going to do today, that the Bible assumes that there'll be, there'll be community and there'll be, um, there'll be a sense of family uh, with one another. So uh, we need to work out how to do that. And if I can put it this way, our community groups really are like the trainer wheels on a uh, kid's bike. All right? How long do the trainer wheels need to be on a kid's bike? And, see, you're all very smart, all right? Until they learn how to ride, all right? So the Bible assumes that uh, biblical community that involves worship mission, um, discipleship, um, lots and lots of stuff, speaking the truth to one another, it's just going to happen naturally because that's what a family does, okay? But for us, what we're doing is we're saying we're just going to provide a structure, we're going to put the trainer wheels on for a little bit, and we are excited about the day, absolutely out of our minds about the day when we don't have to have the training wheels on, where community just happens naturally. So what we're going to do probably for the rest of the year, whenever you uh, get the uh, privilege or curse of hearing me, whichever way you see it, uh, we're going to be looking at some stuff out of Ephesians chapter 4, okay, which talks a lot about community. Just going to read verse 1 and... Two, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which, to which you have been called, with all yeah, loneliness, humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So I'm just going to pray and uh, let's get into it. Jesus, I pray that it would be you speaking today by your Holy Spirit and uh, you'd help us to be emptied of ourselves and uh, filled with you. And have a very purposeful, um, God-directed humility. Amen. So what you actually get in Ephesians chapter 4 is you get a bit of a feel that what Paul's doing is he's saying there's a whole bunch of opportunities in community and there's a whole bunch of threats. Surprise, surprise, a huge threat to community is pride. So straight up, Paul at the start of Ephesians chapter 4 says, be humble. There is nothing that kills community probably quicker and more successfully than arrogance and pride. And some of you may have actually experienced some of that. So what, what we're going to do is we'll look at a few scriptures today um, and we'll hear a whole bunch of bad news uh, about all of us. All right? And in a sense, I'll tell you this, I've preached a little bit in my life. And what happens reasonably often to me when I preach is I have to preach on something that I'm not good at. So what do you do? Does a preacher only preach on the things that they're good at? Well, if they do, they're self-righteous and, they're, and they become a manipulator of other people and they're saying, you need to be like me. See, the frustration in a sense or the, or the tension for a preacher is that a preacher needs to preach what God wants him to preach. All right? And if you think that I'm preaching about pride and humility because I'm really good at humility, you just got it all wrong. All right? And, and the weird thing about humility is, um, I mean, even today's message, some of you might have read a whole bunch of stuff about pride and humility, and you kind of think, well, I can think of all these other things that could have been put in there. Well, that's the case about every topic that you preach on. But Christianity actually isn't about knowing all these other things that you could put, a bit, put in there. Christianity is about actually doing it. That's what it is. 
Um, and maybe you could preach a better sermon than me on humility. You, prob- you probably could. I'm sure that there's people who are far better than me at humility, all right, like most of you, okay? And that's the truth. I'm terrible at it, all right? And especially if you're a leader in a church or something like this, you're always sitting in the back of your mind. You've got these festy, proud thoughts, all right? And you're trying to stay focused on God, but there's always those moments where you're taking too much away for yourself from something that God's doing. There you go. That's me, all right? You just seem to know I do that sometimes. Do I repent of it? Most of the time. Try to, all right? But um, it's, it's an issue. It's an issue for me. So I'm not a guru. I don't know all the best things about humility and pride, all right? And I'm not a very good example for you, all right? But if you do see me being humble, uh, I would say what Paul says. He says, copy me as I copy Christ, all right? And as soon as you see me shifting, and splitting off from what Christ is like, stop copying me, all right? And I'd say that for Nathan and Div too. Stop copying us when we stop being like Christ, okay? So let's get in. Neck deep. Here's a community killer. We're just going to read through this passage out of Acts uh, chapter 5. You can follow it there, or you can have a look in your Bibles. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Sounds a bit like what Chrissy was uh, sharing there before. All right, no doubt they've got a bit of an idolatry problem here, okay? Um, or maybe they just needed the money. It's possible. Uh, they kept back for himself uh, some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So your story is, dude walks in, he says, I'm giving you all the money I got for the block of land that I sold. Peter says, you liar, and God smacks him down. All right? That's, that's going to be, an, that'll be an interesting community group after that one, wouldn't it? Really? You know, so, I don't know. Well, that's one less in our group, right? One less problem, maybe. I don't know. But what's the real problem there? Now, on the surface, it would, it would appear that the problem there is that he's lied. Okay? I want to suggest to you that it's something else. Something you should always do when you read the Bible is read before and after it. All right? So you look at the passage that, you, that you're uh, reading and then you go, okay, well... Usually when someone's writing something, context is really important. So let's read a chunk before it and a chunk afterwards. If you read a chunk before it, you actually read this. Um, This is at the end of uh, chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. That's a challenge for uh, the project here in the two-speed Australian economy, isn't it? For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. You get the vibe here? People are doing this. People are selling land and bringing the money. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
You get the vibe here? Everyone's doing it. Poor old Ananias and Sapphira, they're not. Okay? They don't want to miss out. They don't, they don't want th- people to think poorly of them. And so what rises up in them is this notion of pride. So what do, we, what do we do? We put our block on the market, we go, and we tell them we gave all the money, and then everyone will think that we're grand. No, everyone will think that you're dead. That's what they'll think. Because <laughs> what happens is Sapphira comes in after Ananias has just been dragged out dead, says the same thing. She gets dragged out dead. All right? And the whole issue behind it all is that their pride rose up Peter said, you didn't even have to give everything. You could have given half of it. There was no drama with doing that. But the pride was sitting right in there behind it. This all started in Genesis uh, chapter 3, this whole notion of pride. I read the uh, section where uh, human beings go from being perfect to being fallen. The devil said to the woman, the serpent, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One thing I've noticed uh, with the kids that I've got is often they actually don't, I don't know whether any parents have ever noticed this, but they don't always hear what you say to them. All right? Have you noticed this? You you haven't? No. no, Nothing of the sort. There's an interesting uh, phenomenon that happens with with, uh, children is they don't, often they just totally ignore it, right? It's like selective deafness. This is a really good time to be deaf. All right? Just, no, I didn't hear that at all. There's another kind of hearing that that children often have. and it's this one. You tell them something and they hear what they want to hear. Yeah? Then they come back at you when, when, you, when you cut across them and they go, that's not true, you didn't say that, this is what you said. You're just going, hang on champ, that's not what I said, that's part of what I said and you added to it what you wanted to hear. And there's part of me with this uh, scripture here where I think, I wonder whether Eve is doing that in this situation. All right? It doesn't say this in any commentaries, don't take it to the bank. All right? But I wonder whether she's doing it. Is she really hearing, I could be God? Interesting. Because I actually think that is what rings in the hearts of most human beings when it comes to pride. Ever since then, it's this thought, not that I could be like God, but I could actually be God. And this desire that I actually want to be God. I actually want to be in the centre. I want to be on the throne. Andrew Murray's got a uh, very, very personally damaging book in the best possible way called Humility. All right? This is one of those books, if you read it, uh, I, can't, I think he published it about 100 years ago. If you read it, you read about a page or two and you just put it down and you just go, no, I'm out. And it's not because you don't understand it, it's because you're not doing what he's saying. You just go, give me six months and then I'll read another two pages. He's got this quote about uh, the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden there. When the old serpent, he who had been cast out from heaven for his pride, I mean, that's what the devil did. That's the devil's deal. He wanted to be God. God said, well, there's only one and that's not you. So you're gone. And so he goes around tricking other people into doing the same thing. Whose whole nature as devil was pride, spoke his words of temptation into the ear of Eve. These words carried with them the very poison of hell. And when she listened and yielded her desire and her will to the prospect of being as God, knowing good and evil, 
the poison entered into her soul and blood and life, destroying forever that blessed humility and dependence upon God, which would have been our everlasting happiness. All right, I'm going to show you a clip from the Lord of the Rings, from the return of the king. It goes for about four minutes. It's a little bit longer than what I'd like, but this is uh, the part of uh, the, the, the third part in the trilogy where uh, Gandalf and Pippin are actually going to uh, Minas Tirith. Does everyone know what I'm talking have, have we got any like, Lord of the Rings nuts? Because if we do, they're just going to be going, you're just getting it wrong, man. You didn't pronounce that properly. And they can repent for pride later on, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, basically they're going there because uh, Gandalf, the, the white wizard, is, is going there because uh, there's a man on the throne who's a caretaker of the throne. The true king, Aragorn, is coming later in, the, uh, later in the movie. But this guy's a steward. And Gandalf's going there because trouble uh, is coming and uh, this guy needs to command the armies of Gondor to actually make war. Okay? And so Gandalf's gone there to, um, to encourage him to do that. War is coming. The enemy is on your doorstep. As steward, you're charged with the defence of this city. Where are Gondor's armies? You still have friends. You are not alone in this fight. Send word to Theoden of Rohan. Light the beacons. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. Do you think the eyes of the White Tatar are blind? I have seen more than you know. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor. And with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. Last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Rule of Gondor is mine, and no others. That, I think, is a really good expression of the heart of what pride is. At best, we're stewards. What's this guy saying? He's going, I will not give the throne to the, the rightful owner of it. I will not give it to him. I am going to sit on this throne. And that's the whole story of the Lord of the Rings. A large part of the plot of the, of the story of the Lord of the Rings is Aragorn's coming, and he is the true king. And he's coming to sit on the throne that's his throne. It's not anyone else's, it's his throne. And this guy here will not give it over. And this is the issue with pride in all of us, is that we actually want to sit on the throne in the middle of our lives. And in fact, not only that, but we go further and we actually want other people in some way to actually worship us. That's what we want. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. His, uh, his stuff on pride is just outstanding and humility. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and itself as self, the terrible opportunity of choosing God or self as centre is open to it. At this very moment in time, you and I are either committing it, pride, or about to commit it, or repenting it. So you, you pretty much, you don't get out of it. I mean, seriously, if you're sitting here today and you're going, I don't have a problem with pride, you're probably worse than other people who are saying they do have a problem with it. It's kind of like you just, you, you're never going to be able to get out of it. There's an interesting uh, 
mechanism that's actually happening in our society, and some of you have heard me talk about this already in some of the messages in the project, that we've actually got a secular uh, psychological and um, psychiatry uh, track and direction where people are focusing us on ourselves. The, uh, the talk about self-esteem has been on the go for some time, and it's this entire focus where people are encouraging us, how are you going? How do you feel like you're going? Do you feel happy with yourself? Do you like the look of yourself? And it's very self-focused. Are there some genuine questions in there that need to be answered and need to be maybe worked through? Absolutely. But you would have to say, culturally wide, our focus is on ourselves and our own personal happiness. A psychiatrist called uh, Jeffrey H. Boyd made this observation of our culture. He said, I view the psychotherapy emphasis on the self as encouraging patients to be more successful in pursuing their self-centred goals, i.e. promotes the old Adam approach according to which we live in bondage to the flesh. I see it as a simple question. Who is the captain of my ship, me or Christ? The concept of St Paul and John Calvin that we should despair of our own self-sufficiency is not one which is pouring out of the pulpit of secular psychotherapy. Isn't that interesting? He's saying if you go to the local psychologist or the local psychiatrist that doesn't love God, they're teaching you how to love yourself. And he's saying that's actually going to be counterproductive to actually being in the place that God wants you to be in. Do you have needs? Absolutely. Do you have needs that need to be fulfilled? Absolutely. But do you get those fulfilled by focusing on yourself and making yourself the captain of your ship? Absolutely not. The Bible makes that very clear that it's just not going to get you there. So, we are going to have an extended test to see if you're actually a proud person. This should be fun. All right, I'm going to go through some questions. We'll get a, the next slide, we'll get a tally going, right? But you can just, you don't have to do this out loud. Maybe we should. That'd be a good way to start some humility going. Here we go. First one's this. Do you think you're proud? Yeah, that's right. Someone's going, yes, I do. Oh, that's interesting. Someone's going, no, I'm not. Well, you're in trouble. How do you like it when people ignore you? How do you go with that? You're happy with that? Can you live with it? Does it eat away at you? What about when people don't laugh at your jokes? You just go, Ooh. you know, that kind of... And people get, yeah, that was really good. What about when people refuse to take notice of you? How do you go with that? What about when people... This is an interesting uh, dynamic about pride. What about when people uh, show off in front of you? Or they patronise you? What about the guy in the family wagon? All right, the Tarago who's street racing you on the, on the, on the street, right? You just, <laughs> the crowd's going, that's me, I'm a street racer, my Tarago. All right? What about that? I mean, that's an interesting thing about pride is when someone else is more proud, um, often the response that, if you find in yourself some real antagonism and some real irritation with that person, that's actually because there's a competitive thing going on between your pride and their pride, and you actually want to be better than them. So let's get two more cylinders in the Tarago, and let's line it up at the lights, and I'm going to beat them. I mean, none of us have done that, but we've heard about other people that do that stuff at the lights that want to beat someone else. Because all of a sudden that makes us feel better about ourselves. What about this one? Does your religious life make you feel good? 
What a, does it make you feel better than someone else? In those quiet moments, I mean, I was just talking with uh, Wes over here actually at the start about, um, about how children just come out and say stuff that we adults have worked out a far more sophisticated way to say so that no one notices what we're up to. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what we do. And this is one of the things I reckon is absolutely rampant in the church. And I used to think, you know that whole question, uh, do, you, do, you feel, do you have a sense of self-righteousness within yourself? Is there a sense of self-righteous arrogance? And I'll be honest with you, probably for most of my life I would have said, no, I think I'm pretty clear from that. All right. Idiot. <laughs> in, recent, in recent times, I've just really felt the Lord come in and just show me that I've just got a whole bunch of self-righteousness going on. That I'm actually on the inside, on the outside, I might be saying, uh, God's grace and his mercy is what actually gets me across the line. On the inside, I've got a tally going on. I'm doing this and that. And it's not even that I'm comparing myself to other people necessarily. It's more that I've done that and that and that. I'm doing pretty good. And like, at least, you know, if I don't, you know, if I haven't earned enough for God to give me a banquet, I've at least earned enough to get a bit of parsley garnishing on my meal. Do you get what I'm saying? And, and there's still that whole thing going on there. I think the uh, church, uh, we, starting with me, uh, probably have a far bigger problem with self-righteousness than what we think. And at some point in time, you'll uh, hear a message on that. Have you ever thought at a moment of true humility, man, am I humble? Yeah? Then after your attempt to suppress it, think, that was pretty good. <laughs> Look at this one. Are you thinking about other people who need to download this message? <laughs> Isn't that true? And we sit there sometimes in church and you just kind of go, oh, I can think of someone who really needs to hear this. When in reality, you're probably the one that needs to hear it. And this is the weird thing about pride. I can stand up here today and talk about pride and humility and the humble people think that, will think that I'm talking to them and the proud people think that I'm talking to everyone else. I think, yeah, I'm all sweet with that, but I know a guy's got some issues with that and he should get this message as soon as it's uploaded to the net here we go i'm going to ask you 10 questions and tally yourself up so keep count of how many yeses you get right and we'll see how many you get out of 10 you get to rate yourself in in a totally dodgy way but anyway you get to rate yourself here we go number one do you long for a lot of attention now i didn't the, the question is not do you get a lot of attention do you long for it Okay, so what that is, is if you do get a lot of it and you try to uh, encourage and get more of it, you're going to say yes, but also if you don't get any and you wish you got more, you're going to say yes. Because proud people, and we'll get to this uh, in a slide or two's time, but uh, proud people uh, can be people who are not successful at getting the attention that they want. Do you long for a lot of attention? Number two, do you become jealous or critical of people who succeed? Not even out loud. You're sitting there and, I mean, seriously, if, if, there's, if a, a, some kind of invention was ever brought into being that could turn people's thoughts into reality, there'd be a bloodbath all over the place, wouldn't there? It's like the daggers that you get when you're sitting there and you're just kind of, man, I just, that should be me. And it shouldn't be them and I should take them down. There's a whole uh, book put out by a secular philosopher guy from uh, England called Status Anxiety where he actually talks about this enduring anxiety that people have on the inside about where their status is. And uh, he actually says that people who are in a totally different league to you don't create status anxiety because you just sit there and you just kind of go, 
I couldn't do it. But it's the person who's right next to you that's got similar giftings to you with a similar um, influence around the place that is going to provide the most irritation and trouble for you because you're in competition with them. It's like the previous one, you run the white flag up and go, not worthy. The person next to you, you just go, no, no, it should be me. So if someone near you succeeds, how do you go with that? Are you critical of them? That's two. Number three, do you always have to win? Some of you probably cheated at finger painting in kindergarten, right? Just to win. Okay? Are you like that? Do you, do you twist things? Do you, do you just, are, are you thinking a lot of the time, I've just got to win? Whatever it is I'm doing, I've just got to win. Do you have a pattern of lying? That's interesting. I think people ask some really crazy questions. I remember uh, seeing this Joyce Meyer um, video where she talked about this and she kind of said, people ask some dumb questions because they don't always want the answer. That is the truth. They actually want someone to make up a lie and tell them something good about themselves. So one, a classic one is, I don't know whether you've ever done this, you just kind of go, how do I look? Like, does my hair look all right? And you, what do you really ask? You say, I want you to tell me my hair looks nice. And the other person says, man, like seriously, you should have put the window up in the car. All right? Because it looks like you've been doing about 150 k's with your hair wet and you stuck it out the side with your tongue hanging out like a dog. And so what ends up happening sometimes is we get in these situations, don't we? We just kind of make things up because we don't want someone to think poorly of us. But then we have other situations where we stretch the truth where we're telling stories and we make up stuff about stories that isn't entirely true because we want other people in some way to think that we're wonderful and the pride is actually raising its ugly head. Okay, I've just talked about me. Everyone's going, no, I think that's just you, Peter. Uh, Number five, do you have a hard time acknowledging you are wrong? Yes or no? Are you quick to do it? I mean, there's so many gags on sitcoms about people who can't say sorry and say that they're wrong. How do you go with that? Are you quick at that or slow? Do you have a lot of conflicts with other people? This is interesting because uh, one thing that happens very often between proud people is they fight and they argue and they debate. I tell you, it's, it's a rare thing to find two humble people who are having an argument. Have you ever noticed that? Because the proud people, they're not going to give in to anyone else. They want everyone to come onto their team because they kind of, in some way, kind of sitting on the throne and come over to my team. It's much better on my side. You're the devil. Come with me and sit on my... Th- well, I won't let you sit on the throne, but you can sit on either side of me, all right? And so they spend all this time arguing to try to persuade people that they're right. Do you push in line at the shops, the airport, the freeway, How do you go with that one? I'm not very good at this one. All right? I see the opportunity there and I'm just in there. I I think it's slowly being worked out of my system by being around all these country drivers in Toowoomba, but I actually learned how to drive in Sydney. And uh, I'll tell you, if you drive in Sydney, sorry, if you drive in Toowoomba like you, you drive in Sydney, you just, people will be, you know, lifting their hands to you in very, uh, Nasty ways. Certainly not in worship. <laughs> All right. But, uh, you know, you're at the, at the lineup and, you know, we're at Beatrice Brothers there. There's a, there's a big lineup and there's always interesting people that go to Beatrice Brothers, but we're at Be- including us. We're at Beatrice Brothers and there's a big lineup. What happens when a new checkout opens? Oh, like seriously. 
you could make the next Olympics, couldn't you? When the next checkout opens, you just I'm in there. I'm in there. I'm taking that spot. Really, I mean, the interesting thing is if you're really humble, you'd be looking around and you'd go, right, who's got the fullest trolley with some kids that are just going off? He needs to get there first. But to be honest, I'm just being honest with you, I've probably never done that in my life. All right? Which shows you how much of an issue I've got. Here we go. Do you get upset when people don't honour your achievements? Like you did something and you thought it was really sweet and it was really successful, but no one even says thank you. No one stands up in front of someone else and says, what a wonderful person you are. Do you tend more toward an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? Do you think about your rights, what you deserve to get, or do you think about just being thankful for what you do have? How many have we got there? One, two, three, four, five. Last one. Do you honestly feel that you're a good person? This is one of those things probably that we don't talk too much about with each other, but it's one of those subconscious things where we sit down and we just actually think, oh, I actually think I'm pretty good. And, and we would say, well, I don't mean it in an arrogant way. I mean, that's, that's one of those little lines that I used to tack onto a whole bunch of stuff that I used to do. I just go, look, I don't want to sound arrogant, which is weird because I'm saying that because I want people to think I'm humble, which will mean that my pride gets elevated. Have you noticed that? People say that all the time. I say it all the time. I'm just going, no, I just need to shut up and not say it. So what would you get out of 10? You have to call it out. I wonder what, it, what you got, what score you got. If you got between 1 and 10, you're proud. All right? If you got zero, you're very proud. That's how it works. just want to address this uh, issue of uh, reverse pride for a moment. Because people typically think that someone who's proud is someone who's up front. Uh, at least they're making a big song and dance. Other people, they're trying to draw attention from other people. They're the confident ones. They're the arrogant ones. Uh, it may surprise you that uh, there's a type of pride that exists, and it's actually exactly the same core pride issue, but it actually expresses itself differently, and I call it reverse pride. Reverse pride is saying that you are nobody and that everyone is better than you. People who uh, hate themselves and treat themselves with contempt but continually think about themselves in a negative way are just as proud as people who are arrogant and are up front in front of people and drawing attention to themselves. People who think uh, that people who have a very low opinion of their own abilities have got a pride issue. I'm going to show you how this works in a minute. Thinking their talents and abilities are less valuable than... Uh, you actually think you are. If you think that, sorry, you actually think they are. If you actually think that, you've got a problem with pride. I mean, you don't see in Philippians 2, which is probably the, uh, the top shelf passage, which we'll get to in a minute about pride, you don't see Jesus saying, oh, I'm not really God. All right? I'm actually, you know, he's hanging out with his disciples and he's sitting down and just going, no, I didn't really calm the storm. <laughs> I actually don't have any talent when it comes to storm calming, really. All right? He doesn't do that, all right? Because that's actually not true. And that's a little bit of the mechanism that actually happens with reverse pride, is that we actually like to sit down sometimes and just say we're not actually good at things that we are. The reality is we're being just as proud because we're just thinking about ourselves all the time. And we're wanting other people to think that by putting down the stuff that I do, 
and, and thinking negatively about it. We're wanting other people to think I'm a humble person, which by default means you're a proud person because you want other people to think you're humble. You see that? As it's going. <laughs> My head's spinning. See, we often look at people who uh, have poor self-esteem, for example, and we think, oh, they're a very humble person. And I'm just here to tell you, a lot of the time, they're not. They're just as proud as uh, people who seem very confident. The difference is that the person with poor self-esteem has got poor self-esteem because they're not as capable and not drawing as much attention and not, in a sense, as proud as they would like to be about the stuff that they do. They're not winning. You see, humble people actually don't think about themselves at all. They just don't. They think about other people. They think about God. They're totally other-centred rather than just self-centred. So you want to be humble? You're just going to head toward not thinking about yourself. So on on the one hand, you might have your arrogant, self-confident people over here that draw attention to themselves. On the other hand, over here, you've got the people who feel like they don't make the cut and people don't think they're very good. But on the inside, they're still thinking about themselves all the time. They've got a self-pity thing going on. And right in the middle here is the opportunity to just not think about yourself at all, either negatively or positively. Piper's got a great quote on this, he, um, he says this, boasting is the response of pride to success, self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much, self-pity says I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong, self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognised unworthiness. It is a response of unapplauded pride. There's the truth. You actually don't get out of it. I mean, a fair bit of my life I've thought, if you're not being arrogant and drawing attention to yourself and, and being really proud about stuff, you're off the hook. But I was the guy, a lot of the time, underneath who was thinking, I deserve far better than this. I'm not getting it. People don't notice how good I am. And it was exactly the same pride mechanism happening. It just expressed itself in a different way. So why is uh, pride such a community killer? Well, the nature of pride is it actually puts people in competition with each other. If everyone in, this, uh, in the project here got really, really arrogant and proud, the church would last probably 10 minutes all right, after church because everyone would just be in competition and we'd be all, all be jockeying to get a higher spot on whatever ladder. I don't even know what the stinking ladder is, right? But apparently there is one, right? And if you get on it, you can stand on someone's head and get higher on them on the ladder. If we started doing that, that would almost be the end of the section right there. Because it's competitive. We just want to be better than the person next to us. We want to get more glory than the person next to us. We want to be more central than the person next to us when we're being proud. Because we won't actually be content with getting an equal amount to the next person. We just want to get a little bit more. All right? It's like the, the kid that sits at dinner and, and two scoops of ice cream gets served up for dessert and the brother gets two scoops. They just want an extra half. I just want an extra half because that means I'm better and uh, I'm making the cut. In fact, that's what the guy who wrote Status Anxiety said. He actually said, a uh, non-Christian guy, he actually said what people want is they just want to be a little bit better than the person next to them. 
a little bit better than the next door neighbour. We actually don't want to be way, way better. We, I mean, it'd be nice to have six million dollars, but does anyone else think that? It'd be dangerous, but it'd be nice. Um, we just want to be a little bit better. Uh, all evils of greed and selfishness find their root in pride. So if we have a situation happening in the project, either in community groups or on Sundays, where there's uh, some selfishness happening and it's actually becoming destructive to the family community, well, you can bet your bottom dollar there's going to be pride lurking around in there somewhere. just is. Other sins can unite people, but pride is always hostility because it always wants to be sitting on the throne, always wants you to be sitting on the throne. And ultimately, it's hostility between humans and it's hostility between us and God. So it's no wonder that uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 2 there that one of the critical components for good community is humility. And that's where I want to finish. I'll do one of these. I've got this, a couple of slides here on uh, how irrational being proud is. It just is. It's just stupid. Like, it's really, really stupid. I'll give you a couple of scriptures that show this. We'll skip that one. Go to this one, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Uh, it's a bit of an issue with pride in the church in Corinth, and Paul's addressing it. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, what do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is what pride is. So God gives us a talent, an ability, um, the, the ability to, uh, to look beautiful, maybe, physically, uh, a particular spiritual gift. And what do we do with it when pride gets a hold of it? Well, we actually stand up in front of everyone and say, how wonderful am I because I have this spiritual gift? Totally forgetting that second word is gift, which means you got it from someone. You didn't have it, you got it. But this is what pride does. It takes something that, that you get given and goes around parading it so it looks like it's something that you've always had and something for which you should get the glory. A couple more. Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. We'll read this. This is one of, one of the ones that convicts me a lot. Uh, Will any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Jesus says... Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. This would be like, uh, I mean, you're living at home and another adult comes out and they say, hey, can you just give me a round of applause because I just went to the toilet? Are you going to do that? You're just going to, no, because when your bladder's full, you go to the toilet. That's just what you do. All right? And in terms of what Jesus is saying here, he's going, so when the servant comes in and he just does what he's supposed to do, should he get applauded and should the master look after him? And Jesus goes, no, he shouldn't, because he just did what he was supposed to do. And how often does that happen in the church? And how often has it been the case for me? Is you, is you follow Christ and you perform some act of obedience that he's calling you to, and then at the end of it, you just kind of go, someone give me a round of applause for not looking at porn this week. Do you get what I'm saying? Just pretty sure that's what you're supposed to do. So just do it. Don't stick your hand, hands up in the air and draw attention to yourself and say, what a wonderful person I am, because I actually sacrificed myself for someone this week to love them. 
Just stick your hand up and go, where's my applause? Where's my accolades? Jesus would say to you, well, you just did what you're supposed to. You're on my team, that's what you do. People on my team do that. Is there an opportunity for people to be encouraged? Absolutely. Should we encourage people? Yes, we should. We should be careful about how we encourage people because the way that we encourage people can affect or can be hard for them to stay humble in the way that people encourage sometimes. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that, but if people come up and just lavish praise upon you personally and they never bring God into it and give glory to God through... Um, what you've done or what you've said, that makes it really difficult to stay humble. We should be careful about that, but yeah, there's a place for encouragement. James 4, 6, look, it's totally irrational to be proud. This is like, you know, I don't know whether we've got a land cruiser out there, but this would be like a little standard, not even a green ant, right? Just a standard black ant, right? Standing up on its hind legs. I don't even know whether they're called hind legs. Does anyone... Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's up on its hind legs in front of a wheel of a land cruiser and it's just going, I'm taking you down. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just going to happen. You're just going to be a crumpled wreck on the ground. Now, you'd look at that ant and you'd just go, you are just being an idiot. You have no chance. This is what being proud effectively is saying to God, is you're standing up in front of an almighty, strong, powerful God and you're saying, I'm taking you down, man, and I'm sitting on your throne. He's going, no, you're not. He's saying, yes, I am. He's saying, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Watch me. He's just going, oh, this is going to hurt you. Because <laughs> that's how it always works out. Isaiah 2, verse 12 says this, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now, he hasn't done this because he's omniscient and he's had his plan worked out since forever, right? But this is almost like God sat down and he's got his A3 planner out of the whole of eternity, okay? And he's just, he's found a day and he's just going, that day, I'm setting that day aside to take down proud people and nations. That will be the day where they just get crushed. Now, that's a freaky thing. Like, if you're a proud person, that's a freaky thing because now you're just going, okay, so God's actually got a day marked out where he's coming for me. That's scary. And it would be stupid to stay proud. It would be good and wise and the best thing for you to humble yourself. Last slide. This is where we're going to finish. So the big question is, uh, if Paul says we need to have humility, how do you get humility? I'll tell you one way you don't get it. One way you don't get it is by focusing on it. Because what tends to happen if you focus on it is you just go, I need to be humble, 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 humble. And then eventually you'll decide that you've achieved it, right? And then you'll go, I'm really, I'm really humble. And then all of a sudden you're proud. Do you get that? You're just stuck again. So you just don't... And if humility is uh, not about thinking of yourself as less, but about thinking of yourself less, what you need to do is just not think about humility and not think about yourself and be other-centred. And you get this in uh, Philippians chapter... Two, where Paul talks about Christ. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, which is pride, really, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. Who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself... That's a challenge, isn't it? 
as Paul saying, have the same mind in you that Christ had, make yourself, what do you need to make yourself? Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he deserves that every single creature that has ever existed, you know, whether there was another world that he's created with other creatures, it doesn't matter. The angels are created, every single creature should be serving Christ all of the time. And he comes and he says, no, I'm going to serve them. I'm going to serve people who want to take me down, right? I mean, an ant can't even hold an AK-47, right? But somehow, Christ came down and humbled himself and became nothing to the point where the ant actually did take down the land cruiser. But only because Christ decided that he wanted to humble himself and make himself nothing. Being born in the likeness of men. Let that one sink in. I mean, it, it always spins me out that uh, Jesus was incarnated, he became a man, and then he had to open doors. Seriously? Like God created trees, humans made doors out of the trees, God comes to earth and he has to open a door. That. that I don't know, maybe it doesn't weird you out, but that weirds me out. And I just kind of think, why does he have to do that? Shouldn't have to do that. Someone else should have to open it for him. What about, seriously, I mean, this is probably a bit gross, but I'm just going to go with it, all right? Now, you've got lots of animals and stuff on the streets in Jerusalem. They're doing manure. They've got manure going all through the streets. What do you, what do you have if you've got manure? you usually got flies. I mean, think about that. Jesus actually came down, became a human, walked through streets and probably had flies that had just departed a pile of manure sitting on his lip. That's a gross thought, isn't it? I mean, most of us have probably had that too. We don't like to admit it or think about it too much, but we've probably had that too. But God, God, should he have a fly, an irritating fly or an irritating dozen flies sitting on his lip just after they've been on manure? Well, the answer is no, he shouldn't. He should be in a pristine, dustless, dirtless, perfect environment. But what does he do? Makes himself nothing. He humbled himself further by actually becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is intense. Not only is he doing all those other things, and so many other things that I haven't even talked about, and humbling himself in those ways, but he lets some humans just put nails through his wrists and his feet. I want to close on this. For a large part of my life, I've probably thought humility means just letting anyone else do whatever they want to me and being a doormat. But when you look at Christ in Philippians chapter 2, he's not really looking like a doormat, is he? Because there's a purpose to his humility. He wants to get people somewhere. He wants to get you somewhere. He wants to get me somewhere. And so he empties himself and makes himself nothing to get people to God. He gets people to his dad. He gets people saved. He is very, very purposeful. And that would be something that God would be calling all of us here in the project to do, is to be very, very purposeful about how we're being humble. We'll make ourselves nothing 
and empty ourselves of ourselves. But why are we going to do that? So that we can move people to God. So we can move people closer to each other. So that we can, so that we can love people. So that other people will come to, to love Jesus and they'll glorify him and worship him more. That's why we do it. So we need to focus on Christ. We need to empty ourselves of ourselves, be centred on Christ, let him be on the throne. We need to love people, move them closer to Christ, empty ourselves of ourselves. And let's stop fencing off areas of our life where we don't want God to go. Let him move in those areas. Let him call you to do things. In humility, let him call you to do things that maybe you haven't done in the past. Why don't you pray with me? God, there would have been nothing wrong um, for you to be in heaven and stand up there, point the finger down and say, this is what I want you to do, get it done. And we should have had to have done it if, if that is what you chose to do. But you, you didn't choose to do that. You just show by example the whole way through the scriptures. And we appreciate that. And you call us to be humble. You don't just stand up there as the king sitting on the throne. Oh, sorry, you sit up there as a king on the throne and say, be humble. But you actually get off your throne. You make yourself nothing. You humble yourself in front of us and then you say, be like me. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be like you. I pray that this community of the uh, project would be known as a humble community. Not that we'd attribute that to each other or we'd even think about it but that you would make us humble, you'd make us quick to repent and quick to turn from our pride. Amen.